All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Welcome to a, another episode of the Rethinking Faith Podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, and with me today is my co-host, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, man? Not much. Just getting ready, Josh. I'm getting ready. What are you, I mean, what are you getting ready for? Like, quarantine, <laughs> or <laughs> what are you getting ready for? Josh, I just, I really wanted to set you up for that as best I could. To be able to say, what are you getting ready for? <laughs> I Did I do am, a good job? Uh, you did great, man. Oh, perfect. You're, but right. you generally do a good job with that kind of thing. Sweet. Um, so, <laughs> but uh, my brothers and I, uh, when we finish this podcast, I have uh, two younger brothers. Uh, we're going to be taking a road trip to Zion National Park in Utah, um, and for us, that's leaving from Chicago. So that's a couple, uh, a couple hours worth of driving. You know, just a little bit. Um, and so we're we're getting the car ready to go, and like I've been packing my bag today, and like you know, with this whole like you know, quarantined, you know, no one has to go to work or most people don't have to go to work. I should say uh, kudos to the healthcare workers, by the way. Um, uh, that kind of gives us like some like free time to go and do something like that while getting paid by some of us. Cause our jobs like pay us while we're off uh, <laughs> with this whole thing. So that's kind of sweet. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's pretty good. I, I am not going camping or backpacking. That sounds a lot of fun though. I've, so we've we've transitioned. We've been trying to figure out like, hey, you're a church, and now your doors are shut, and people can't gather. So like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> what are you supposed to do now? So we're trying to figure out what that looks like, what it means uh, to actually be a church that is scattered, which I think, in a weird sense, is actually probably a more accurate depiction of the church anyway. Uh, so that's kind of what we're trying to figure out. Um, you know, whatever connecting virtually but you know what's and, like, and what we can do to help people in our communities. Yeah. And like, you know, what's really cool is like, to me, this isn't really what, like, this is like the church has never been about the building and showing up to worship together. Like in so many people, especially in our country, take that for granted. Like, Oh, I just go to church on Sunday and then things are just totally fine. And uh, so this is like helping the church. Like, Oh, I mean, I guess to say in a weird way, like learn a lesson, like you don't have to go to your church to participate in worship and actually if that's the only worship you're doing like you're probably <laughs> you're probably missing out mm, on, like sure. a huge chunk 
But the funny thing is, Josh, this actually probably has very little to do. <laughs> like we're like, this is like we could do a whole episode on this, like on, on itself. Like we could talk about this topic as a topic. Sure. So, yeah, we sh- so we'll we'll break from it and we'll we'll jump to something more fun. How about this, Marty? Today, pretty much, it would be fair to say we're going to talk about sex. What do you think? I think I think maybe if if you guys listened to this episode and I didn't change the intro music to let's talk about sex, <laughs> um, <laughs> then you guys can feel free to flame me on social media because I, if I'm not sure if we can use that is like if we have the rights to use it. But if we do have the rights to that somehow, if we can get it. We're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or we could at least get like just a little bit of like do like a pause. Like we're going to talk about sex. Pause. And then play yeah. like a little clip of the chorus and then jump in. Smooth fade. Or right said right said Fred too sexy. Ooh, that would be go. also another or just good get a little one. Marvin Gaye, you know, <laughs> something like that. It'd be something. Good. Yeah, yes. and, and and with us today to talk about sex uh, is our guest <laughs> Matthias Roberts. Matthias, how's it going? How's that for an intro? By the that way, that was quite an intro. <laughs> <laughs> That was amazing. Uh, it's so good to be here. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited thanks. to have you, man. We're excited to have you. Um, thank you for taking time uh, out of your day to to come and hang out with us. And um, thank you for yeah. not hanging up on the Skype call like these guys are, are ridiculous. We need to stop this now. <laughs> well, and so, Matthias, like there's a – if you've ever listened to our podcast before, or you know, there's a question we ask every guest that comes on our show, uh, and that question is, uh, and, and get ready because this is probably the most important question we will ask you oh, on the entire podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> who is your favorite ice hockey team? Oh my gosh, I haven't listened before, so this is totally out of left field. <laughs> <laughs> it is for most people. Don't feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. I have been to a single ice hockey game in my life. Okay. And I don't even know what the teams were, um, but it was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So whatever that hockey team is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, maybe the Oilers, I'm not sure. Um, that okay. I, I would say by default. All right. Well, <laughs> you know, my the favorite best... team. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Josh is probably going to say this, but uh, since you're living in Seattle area, uh, they're about to get a hockey team. They yeah, are. I heard uh, that. An expansion. I heard I believe they're gonna, that. They're the Seattle Kraken. Is that what they're going to be called? That's the that's the rumor. It's the rumor, yeah. Which okay. is a pretty yeah. freaking yeah. awesome name. So yeah. yeah, it makes me think of Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, very it's, right. That's where I go with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, hey, I'm down. That's... Well, nice. Awesome. Well, thanks. So, and uh, sometimes when people answer that question, if they don't know, like you can tell that they're kind of chapped that they have to answer it. Um, so thanks for thanks for being a trooper. And totally. <laughs> so uh, can you give us a little bio of who you are, Matthias? Like, who who are you? What kind of things do you do? Like, what what kind of work are you involved in right now? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So uh, primarily, I'm a therapist. Um, that's kind of my my day job, uh, part time because I do a variety of other things. But I uh, I consider that my main job. So I'm I'm a psychotherapist here in Seattle, Washington. Uh, I, I also host a podcast called Queerology, a uh, podcast on belief in being, uh, which is a podcast that, that really looks at those intersections of being a person of faith and being a queer person. Uh, and what does it look like to kind of live life well at those intersections? Um, I just recently wrote a book called Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms, uh, which 
I'm imagining that's what we're going to be talking about. So I won't go into a ton of detail. Oh, you have it. I do. <laughs> we're we're on Skype right now, so I can see. I can see it's it's in your hands. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and, and then uh, I, I write and speak kind of at the intersections of of mental health theology and uh, sexuality uh, across the U.S. So it's a it's a big mix of things. <laughs> Very cool. But, but I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um. I, I saw, and I mean, this is just from uh, reading off the back of your book, but that you have uh, a master's in both, um, oh shoot, theology and culture, and then also in, in psychology. Yep. Is that true? Okay, cool. That is true, yeah. And then, so, um, have you, so like, what is like your faith journey been then? Like, have you, did you grow up a Christian? Uh, what, what does that look like for you? Yeah, yeah, I I did grow up. I grew up in a um, very Christian household. My parents, my parents converted to Christianity like in their mid thirties, early thirties, uh, and and got married around that time as well. So they were very passionate about their faith uh, when I was born, and have continued to be. Uh, so it was an integral kind of part of my life. I, I grew up quite literally grew up at a Christian camp in rural Wisconsin, a year-round camping center uh, that my parents worked at. And it was the air that I breathed and and became very important to me. I, I think, like, I don't remember my experience of giving my life to Christ. Like, I, the only thing I remember, I think I was four years old, was, <laughs> was looking up at this guy and seeing the stars and asking my mom, like, I want and I mean I was so young but that has has carried through my whole life like it's a very important part of me it has I mean changed significantly from the kind of conservative borderline fundamentalist world that I grew up in um, but it's still a very integral part of my life um, mm. yeah, yeah it was it was complicated by realizing I was gay like that was <laughs> sure <laughs> as i can only imagine uh-huh uh-huh yeah 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 no that that's awesome and actually we um we we did an episode a while back uh with someone with a very similar story a very good and close friend of mine named chad um who grew up in the church and then also you know his story is also one of, of he's uh, fully identifies as a, a a gay man and um super cool dude anyway that's besides the point um, <laughs> but you did, you did mention you have a new book out, uh, and I do have it right here. I read it. It's, um, I really enjoyed it. Actually, I read it in like two or three sittings. Um, I couldn't no put way. it down. I was pretty hooked. Wow. Um, yeah. and it's called beyond shame, creating a healthy sex life on your own terms. And so today, basically the ideas, uh, and, and something you captured in your book is this idea of, of rethinking how, um, we look at, talk about, um, sex and what it means mm -hmm. uh to have a, a sexy or a healthy sex life a sexy. sorry <laughs> a healthy a sex, sex a life a sexy sex life which i guess could it also be healthy yeah so anyways <laughs> forgive my my mishaps here uh but why so why did you write this book and and who is it for yeah so uh I'll answer the who's it for question first. Okay. Uh, the The book is ultimately for people who grew up within kind of religious culture 
some people call it purity culture, uh, that had pretty strong restrictions around what's okay and what's not okay when it comes to sex and sexuality. Uh, and for folks who are now a little bit later on in life thinking, wait a second, I don't know that I believe all of that. And I don't know that everything I was taught was true. So how do I work with that? Uh, a lot of folks coming from that, uh, and, and this gets into kind of why I wrote it, experience a lot of sexual shame because of what we were taught about sex growing up. Uh, right. And so the book really looks at how do we work with the sexual shame we've been given, and then how do we construct more expansive sexual ethics while still holding on to values, holding on to faith, uh, whatever that kind of looks like now. Uh, how do we hold all those things together and, and create a sexuality that is actually healthy? Um, that, that's the main goal of the book. And and I wrote it because, I mean, first I was I, I was confused. <laughs> I didn't sure. know I didn't know what I believed, kind of what I thought about this. Like I I up until my mid twenties really firmly held to kind of purity culture teachings of don't have sex before marriage. Uh, there's something that will happen to you if that happens, and, and God doesn't want that. Uh, but in my 20s, I started looking around and, and seeing all of these people who had thriving faith lives, who were sexually active outside of a marriage, outside of a partnership. And that kind of threw some cognitive dissonance in the mix for me because I was like, wait a second, I've been taught for so long that this is utterly wrong and will kind of ruin my life. <laughs> and yet all these people I deeply respect are are engaging in sexual practices without it ruining their lives. So what what is going on? And, and I was just at the very beginning of my master's programs then, and so really kind of spent the next few years in my master's degrees, exploring these questions, both from a, from a theological perspective, but also a psychological perspective. Uh, thankfully, I went to a school that had a strong emphasis on sexuality. Uh, and this book is kind of the result of that exploration. Mm. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Mm. And one thing, I mean, to tie into that, that I really appreciated about your book is how, um, so I'm a super relational person and, and so is Marty. Um, and how much you tied in the relationships and stories of, of real people that you know or clients that you've interacted with um, and brought their story into what you were saying I thought was super helpful mm -hmm. um, because we can, you know, make theories or talk out here in the sky all day, um, right. but until it gets to the heart of, like, this is actual people, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, those things aren't necessarily all, all the time helpful. So I, right. I really appreciated that about about your work. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, we as human beings learn through stories, right? Like that's Absolutely. the primary yeah. way that we learn. And and so, I mean, I, I come from the perspective, obviously, that we have to ground all of our stuff, theology, we have to ground our psychology, we have to ground all of that within real stories, within real daily lives. Or, And if that can't be done, then what good is it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I appreciated what you said at first, too, when you had said, um, you know, as we said, like, why did you write this book? And you said, well, because I wanted I, I didn't know how I felt about it. And, like, yeah. you know, you said it was essentially a learning curve for you, too. And so I think what that does for the reader is that brings them to the perspective of saying this isn't somebody who 
is going to speak at me about this topic and tell me what I ought to do, which is what so much of purity culture has done for so long. It's been about this is what you're supposed to do and just take my word for it. But instead, this was kind of like a learning process for you, too. And I think that's really helpful for the reader, particularly on this sensitive topic. I mean, I I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't become a believer even until I was mid high school. Uh, But I remember uh, sometimes the youth pastors would do full on, you know, youth youth. Uh, youth services and messages about, you know, whether it was even okay to date. Um, totally, and, right. <laughs> and and oftentimes you would be given the, essentially you would be told, it's it's a it's the best practice to not even date at all. Right. But if you're going to date, it must be another Christian, and um, preferably that other Christian would also be in this youth group, so that like you're getting the same message. And they they never would have said it that way. They never would have communicated it that way. But you could tell that that's what they were trying to say. Um, and I mean, I I began going to the youth group because there was a girl that I was interested in that was going to that youth group, and I was invited. And I went <laughs> once, and I noticed her, and I was like, oh, well, I should keep coming back. And then as I got to know her, I realized like her stance on dating was like, I'm not going to date at all. Mm. Not until I'm like this age. And it's like, okay, well, where's the cutoff? Because like, you know, if you're saying that God is supposed to direct you to somebody, what if that somebody is here right now? Like, what? <laughs> you know, like, why would you? And this was me coming at it from a completely non-faith-based perspective, mm-hmm. you know, so just trying to think logically. And I'm like, just, just, there's a lot of this that doesn't make sense. And I don't even understand all of it. So right. I, I'm, I, I appreciated what you had to say about that, just kind of giving that perspective of, you know, we're, we're going to learn this together instead of I'm the expert. I'm going to make sure you feel dumb. And so you just follow <laughs> Right. Because, I mean, and like you said, like we are, we all know what that feels like. Right. I mean, whether it comes from our teachings of sexuality or whatever else, like, especially when it comes to conversations of religion, faith like we know what it feels like to be talked down to. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think that's why, I mean, if we want to talk about like reworking faith, like that's why so many of us are in this space of being like, wait, wait a second. <laughs> this <laughs> yeah. is, yeah. this is, this isn't working. This isn't working for me. Um, yeah. It's, we're, we're all in this together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, oh, I don't want to chase this rabbit, but yeah, we are, we're all in this together. And I think that's, I mean, the idea of shalom within scripture, the the, mm-hmm. the wholeness, the oneness of, of all creation and um, oneness with God is, um, I mean, ideally the goal, right? So um, I always come back to that. But I think, so both of you have mentioned this idea of purity culture, and I want to talk about that. But before we jump there, I think it might be helpful because uh, we were throwing around some terms that um, it might be helpful if, if we had a clear understanding of what they were before we started talking about this purity culture stuff. Um, so can Matthias first, can you just, uh, quickly let us know, like, um, sex and sexuality are closely related, but they're also different. And, mm-hmm. um, then I have one more, uh, shame, uh, that I want to talk about as well, but sex and sexuality, what's the, what's the difference there? Yeah. So when I talk about sex and sexuality, I do make a distinction. Uh, I, sex, when I refer to it, I think of it as an act. So you can define that as broadly or as narrowly as you would like. Uh, but it, it is a physical act of doing something sexual. Okay. Uh, whereas sexuality is kind of the energy of of sex so you can experience sexuality without having sex Mm. um but 
arguably you can't really have sex without experiencing sexuality in some form. There's, there's some debate about that, but for the majority of us, that's, that's true. Okay. Uh, and, and so, I mean, the, the classic example of this distinction is uh, folks who tell LGBTQ people that um, you can call yourself gay, so your sexuality, you're attracted to people of the same gender, uh, but you're not allowed to act on it, right? That's, that's a common thing that a lot yeah. of churches are, are telling queer folks right now. Sure. It's okay to identify with this, but you can't act on it. Um, mm-hmm. I would say, like, yeah, there's there's a distinction there. There, I have, there are major problems with the way that that plays out, which which we won't get into right now. Um, but a lot of people understand that distinction even from from that conversation around queer folks. Um, it, it's simply to say, we can think about a sexuality, <laughs> we can work with a sexuality without necessarily having to be sexually active, um, if that's if that's one of our values that we hold to. Um, we can still do all of all of the work around um, around developing a healthy sexual ethic um, because sexuality is so much bigger than just a sex act. Mm. Okay, yeah. awesome. That's a, I think that's a really helpful uh, distinction to make for sure. And then the one other thing I wanted um, you to to hit on real quick because I know it's it's going to come up over and over again. And I mean, it's within the title of your book is this idea of shame. So when we talk mm-hmm. about shame. Uh, what are we talking about? Yeah. So. There's a, there's a couple key things that I that I point to when I talk about shame. There are many definitions out there. Uh, the two that I kind of come back to in the book are one: shame makes us turn away. Uh, research has shown that when we feel shame, we turn away from the source of the shame. So if it's a person, you know, will like really quickly look towards the nearest exit or look down. Uh, we'll, we will do kind of anything we can it's an uncomfortable feeling that we'll do anything we can to get away from uh it's it's different from so people talk about guilt and shame shame is this feeling of i am something bad i am wrong there's something deeply bad wrong unworthy about me whereas guilt is i did something wrong i did something bad so it's it's tied to an action instead of a state of being uh, so shame are, is all those messages of um, I'm not worthy of relationship. Uh, I uh, am a horrible, messed up person. Uh, nothing I can ever do will change that. Uh, it gets tied into our theology a whole lot, <laughs> yeah. especially Christian theology. Um, but but shame are those feelings of I'm dirt. Yeah. Well, can I ask a question along the lines of shame? Yeah. Um, based on the same topic we're kind of talking about here, can you kind of, I know that we don't necessarily need to stay here forever, but can you talk about the connection of shame and conviction Mm. um, within this topic and within, because I feel like the word shame has been used to kind of bring others down. Like, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself. Right. Whereas others, I think the Christian term has kind of turned into something like, well, that person feels ashamed because they've been convicted mm-hmm. um, or the person turns away from dealing with this issue. And I think that's often been, you know, I think that's often been in how the conservative Christian church has dealt with homosexuality as they've said the, the, the homosexuality community is convicted 
of their sin. And so they turn away from that and they feel that shame. So can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I, I'm not sure if this gets us to where we're trying to go, but it just was something that I was thinking of as you were talking. Yeah, I mean, so so one, I mean, this, this idea that uh, people who are practicing things that I disagree with, so whether that be LGBTQ issues or whatever else, um, that they have been convicted, therefore that's why they won't come to church or that's why they won't repent. That's a really lazy, convenient excuse, right? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Like, it's just, so, I mean... Uh, let's put that in in a box, uh, but but the idea of conviction versus shame, I I would argue uh, that conviction falls into the guilt camp, or at least it it should, and and I don't really love the word should, but uh, I think conviction ties to this the sense of like I have done something wrong, and therefore I need to repent, therefore I need to change what I have done. Uh, it can easily turn into shame. I have done something wrong, therefore I am bad. Uh, but I think as long as conviction is kind of sane in that guilt sense and we're able to separate our own self-worth uh, from our own actions, uh, then we can start to play with that idea of, of, of is conviction a good thing and and is guilt a good thing and and in some ways i mean i I say in the book guilt drives us into a relationship because it's this feeling of something needs to be restored i need to do something to restore our relationship um and i will be kind of have this guilty feeling until that happens um it's it's a relational drive whereas shame is not shame takes us out of relationship uh, so, so I think there's a yeah. pr- pretty big difference there, and they yeah. can merge together in in ways as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's really helpful, and I think too, just real quick, and then we'll move on. But like a, a practical example of where this idea of um, shame versus guilt came into play for me recently is uh, at the church I work at. We were doing this series about like, oh, what's the most important thing? And it was like, love your neighbors yourself. You know, love God and love your neighbors yourself. And so uh, our head pastor wanted to do a, um, a, a sermon specifically about the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. And the church, like our staff, was kind of torn about it because our staff does not agree on this issue, which is a beautiful thing that uh, is allowed at my church, which is really cool. Um, so they were nervous. But the whole premise was there's an entire community of people that thinks that we hate them. We're failing at the most important thing. And so what we ended up doing was the, instead of having just a, a sermon about, hey, this is what you have to believe, um, we had a conversation. And so our head pastor uh, did a whole bunch of study and, and research, and he said, hey, um, here's kind of two ways people look at this. Um, I know there's, there's you know, more than one or two ways, but these, these are two ways. He basically took an affirming versus a non-affirming view um, and said – I understand the affirming side. I'm just not there yet. And mm-hmm. then he had um, one of our congregants. Uh, she is awesome. She fully identifies as a lesbian. Um, however, she is married to a man. And mm. she did not do that out of conviction, however. She wasn't one of these people who said, uh, oh, this is wrong. Therefore, I'm going to go find a guy. She just ended up meeting a guy at the bar and falling in love with him. And she says, I don't know why. I think guys are gross, but this one is cool. <laughs> and so she got she got to share her story. 
Um, and then he also invited me to be a part of the conversation, uh, which when I'm asked about uh, the affirming thing, non-affirming thing, uh, my honest answer is, well, it depends on what day you ask me. Um, mm. It's a super personal question. My brother is gay. Uh, we've been kicked out of multiple churches uh, because of this, my family. Uh, one of my best friends I served in ministry with, he was the worship pastor at a church that I worked at. He is very gay. <laughs> mm. And so it's, 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 it's uh, more of a struggle for me, definitely more on the affirming side. Um, but I guess I can have days where, where doubts uh, come in just based off my upbringing. But regardless, when we were having this conversation, this idea of shame and guilt came up because our head pastor asked, why is it that – so if you take this issue specifically as like sinful, why is it that Christians are so willing to forgive other, other sins but they hang on to this one? Um, and I, I don't know where I heard it, but the answer basically I gave was this shame and guilt thing because mm. so many people think that if you like – I don't know, let's go extreme, kill somebody, then that's a bad thing that you did. But when you start talking about someone's sexuality, that's who they are. And now they're evil, they're bad. And so there's a big distinction there. And so uh, that was a lot of rambling for a a quick illustration. (laughs) But I think Mm. it's so true. And I think we need to have Mm -hmm. that distinction Mm -hmm. between shame and guilt because shame is is so uh, damaging and hurtful, especially when we start to apply it to other people as a helpful way to just shut them up and push them aside. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. thank you for, for that clarification. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I guess moving forward, one thing that you and Marty both mentioned, uh, is this idea of purity culture. Um, and so I kind of wanted to, to talk a little bit about that just in case people aren't aware of that terminology, like kind of, uh, what is it and how does it tie into this idea of shame? Um, (laughs) But one thing that I remember that that my friends and I used to joke about um, once we started to realize like, you know, we didn't know what we thought about the whole purity culture thing, but we knew some of it was kind of like, "Eh, I don't know how we feel in college. We used to say, no, you can't have sex because you'll get pregnant and you will die. So we would always make fun of our friends. Like (laughs) if there there was a, a girl that stayed over or something like that. You know, the night before in our apartment, we'd be like, hey, man, like, I'm sorry, but you're going to get pregnant and die now. Way to go. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's purity culture in a nutshell. But what is what is purity culture and how does it tie into this idea of shame? Yeah, I mean, <sighs> purity culture is defined a, a billion different ways. The, the way I think about it, it's a movement that was born in kind of the late 80s, early 90s that uh, – was a way to try to teach young people uh, about God's standard for sexuality slash purity, right? They, they pulled this idea of, I, I think, from the Psalms, how can a young man keep his way pure? Mm. Uh, and that's by living according to the word of God, right? Uh, and so th- they begin to kind of set up this, this standard of here's, this is what God's standard for sexuality is, is no sexual immorality at all. And then begin to define what sexual immorality is with pretty rigid lines. Uh, is, so basically that means no sex before marriage. Uh, sex can only be had within an intimate, well, bet- not even intimate. It doesn't have to be intimate <laughs> within a heterosexual marriage, right? That's the key. Heterosexual marriage. Uh, any sex within heterosexual marriage is, uh, as long as between those two partners, is fine. Anything outside of that is wrong, sinful, bad not up to God's standard. 
Uh, but then it started getting pulled into like, I mean, Marty, what you're talking about, this idea that dating is even bad, right? A guy named Joshua Harris kind of wrote this seminal book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which was on yeah. this Christian standard of courtship of we can't even date because of what feelings that may awake within us. We have to take control of our thought lives. We have to take control of our bodies. Um, and, and it set up this, this kind of, I mean, to put it in, in language now, it started splitting us off from our sexuality, which is a core part of who we are. Uh, and that's been, long established within Christian orthodoxy. Sexuality is a core part of who we are. Mm -hmm. But it was this idea that we can split that and and take control over everything sexual, clamp it down, not look at it, not pay attention to it, and then suddenly flip a switch and turn it on once we get married. Um, it, was, it was really damaging. Uh, there, there's a woman named Linda K. Klein who wrote a book called Pure, uh, mm -hmm. inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. And, and she writes in her book that purity culture disproportionately affected young women and that a lot of therapists and, and psychologists now are starting to see PTSD-like symptoms in folks, both men and women, but, but primarily women, uh, who grew up with impurity culture because of the ways that they were taught to go to war with their body. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it really was painted as a war between our flesh and the the saved parts of ourselves or, or whatever we want to, <laughs> whenever we want to call that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I remember for me, like I, I went to this, um, I don't know what to call it, like a, a rally or a gathering or something like this called the silver ring thing. Mm. And have you heard of this? They, I haven't, but I can guess what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they gave me, they gave me at this event, um, they gave me a purity ring. Um, and in that purity ring, I forget exactly the reference. So forgive me, you know, I'm a bad Christian, whatever. Uh, but I had a reference to the, the passage in, I think it's either First or Second Thessalonians that talks about um, sexual immorality or whatever. And basically at this event, they did like all these demonstrations and talked about purity and like, did this stuff where they like glued paper together and ripped it apart or like took a bite out of a cookie and like spit it on the ground, like all this kind of stuff. Um, and it was very much, I mean, that's purity culture in a nutshell. <laughs> I even, I even have a new, a new Testament that they gave me. Um, I've since discarded it, but it, it had a picture of the purity ring on the front of it. And it oh was gosh. like titled the silver ring thing. Like, the pure, and it, I th it was specifically for guys too. It was like the pure men's Bible or the pure guy, something like that. And it was only a New Testament. And they had all this stuff, you know, throughout the New Testament, basically talking about abstinence and that kind of stuff, purity. Right. Um, and so I was definitely steeped in it. And I, I mean, I entered into a relationship with the person that um, I've since married, uh, my wife, Noelle. We started dating our freshman year in high school. Mm. And I remember this purity thing didn't happen until like sophomore year. So that was like super weird or awkward. And then like she had a completely different perspective and whatever. But it's definitely something that uh, I was steeped in growing up. And I guess for you, Marty, not so much since you didn't come to faith until a, a later point in time. Not not as much, but it definitely even in high school, I remember being, in, you know, going to youth camp over the summer 
and uh, you know, like the week long camp where you go stay somewhere and there's a, there's a, uh, like a not famous Christian band that is, you know, hired for the week. And like, <laughs> and like it, it, it was all that they had a speaker that came out and all that stuff. And there's, it was never a 100% about sex, uh, but there was always something about that each time. Uh, they focused more on purity culture. I think at least my experience was purity culture, not necessarily only uh, when it comes to sexuality and relationship, but more so like being pure with, with the music we listen to and the shows we watch and the books we read. And so they kind of tried to, they tried to apply it to as many things as possible. Mm -hmm. And I remember my perspective kind of being, you know, yes, it probably is better to not do this. You know, and like having that mindset, um, I remember um, this guy said uh, one of these things, it was like, you know, one of those summer things and the guys were separated and the girls were separated and um, somebody, it was like a Q&A session and he asked, some guy asked, you know, some kid asked, you know, is it okay to masturbate? Mm-hmm. And he said, if you can, if you can masturbate without looking at any images or thinking about anybody else good luck (laughs) then it's then it's okay it will i think he said well i guess that would make it okay but like he was trying to be like i think he was trying to make it seem like so impossible that like there would be an actual but then you know going off to college and everything like that i i I don't think you know i I wasn't really i still i was a part of a christian group and i'm still friends with many of those people even today and um you know, there was definitely that mentality, but to, for many of them at that point, it was not as much a, you know, let's teach people about this as much as it was a, well, you're just going to, I mean, that's that's what it's supposed to be. Like, you're just supposed to re- refrain completely until you're married. Uh, and I'm sure, uh, although I don't know that many would admit it, I'm sure that those that did refrain um, did have fairly, what probably seemed like shameful wedding nights. Or you know, wedding nights that were really awkward. It's just, even at the even in best case scenario, just very awkward, not really knowing what to do. Uh, you know, this sort of saving yourself mentality for both. Because uh, I remember, you know, the first first time I was with my with my wife, um, it was her first ever, and uh, I remember very very specifically that that was afterwards like it was a very awkward feeling for her, like she didn't really know what to do with herself. And I think that that I think that's probably what it turns into. So I think. Overall, my experience was probably a little different, but also very similar just in the fact that they tried to tie as many things as possible into purity culture because it's easy to stop listening to Dr. Dre. Um, It's hard to stop looking at the girl in your class and letting your thoughts get carried away, you know, and I I, I think for me, they made it easier to believe that it was absolutely the right path by attaching as many things as possible to it. Mm. I know that makes sense, but yeah, for sure. Marty. And I think too, what you just did is you, you got into some of the, the psychology behind this idea of purity. Um, and actually I wanted to ask you about that. Um, Matthias, because so recently, so I'm a, I'm a full-time high school and young adult pastor. I don't know if I shared that with you. Uh, but recently, like, I mean, I've had students come to me and, and, and talk about pornography, masturbation, all that kind of stuff all the time. And, um, I was speaking with a student recently and they were basically sharing with me, like, look, like, you know, I, I see girls all the time and like, yeah, I'm attracted to them. That means I'm bad. Right. 
because mm-hmm. I'm attracted to them. But then when we if, and we go from like a biological standpoint, we're like, well, no, like if if that's who you're attracted to, that's who you're attracted to. You can't help but have these feelings, these emotions. This this is just part of how your body works. And we're so used to telling these people like, no, that makes you evil. So like, what are the like the psychological ramifications of such um, shaming of people from something that we don't necessarily have control over? Totally right. I mean, that's that's kind of like the the crux of it right there, right? Is is this idea that so I think purity culture tried to teach us that we could take full and complete control of our thought lives slash our bodily reactions like that that i think was the ultimate goal at least how it was presented to me but the reality is and what you're describing is we can't (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) like our bodies respond outside of conscious control and our con our attempts at conscious control only mess things up uh, I mean, there there are ways we can get around that, but for the, for the most part, it, it, it's it's really actually pretty bad for us when we try to consciously control these things. Um, so that's when the shame gets in because we're being told all of these desires are are wrong, bad, and then we find that we can't control that, and therefore we think we must be wrong and bad because we can't control. The fact that these desires are coming up uh and and so that's when things start getting really kind of twisted uh it's when we start internalizing these messages of because i can't control this and because this means i'm going to do something bad since i'm not married um therefore god must hate me therefore i must be bad therefore i'm probably going to go to hell and so on and so on and so on when I mean, the reality is is we're sexual beings mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it's <amen>. a normal <laughs> normal thing and and especially in adolescence this is when like i mean these these things really start to get internalized is like that's a very sexually charged time of our lives <laughs> we mm-hmm. have tons of hormones just flowing through our bodies we can't not experience our sexuality um, and, and so, so the question then is, how do we begin to talk about that in ways um, that that don't shame the fact that our bodies respond to to stimulus, uh, our minds respond to stimulus, and still introduce those conversations of, of of what does it mean then to to live as someone with values? Like, what are my values, and and what might it mean to be a sexual being in the world? Uh, and a person of faith, if that's something that we that we want to bring into the equation, um, because we can't control it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a perfect segue because I mean, you kind of talk about there's there's these three ways that we tend to respond um, when it comes to to questions around sex and sexuality, um, and their shamefulness. Uh, some people go the path of shamefulness, which I think we find a lot in purity culture. Uh, some mm-hmm. people do the opposite and they go shamelessness and they're like, uh, forget all of it. I'm just going to go for it, whatever. Uh, and then there's kind of like this idea of, of autopilot, like, well, I don't know what I think. I'm just going to kind of go with the flow and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those are three ways people tend to respond. Is there anything else you'd like 
that would be helpful around those those three ways that we respond because I don't think um, I mean unless I misread your book I don't I'm not convinced that you think either of those three options is necessarily the greatest. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I call him, I'm call him coping mechanisms. In the yeah. Book coping mechanisms. Exactly. Uh, right. Because none of those are necessarily healthy sexuality, right? There's elements of health potentially within all of them, <laughs> but they're not necessarily healthy sexuality. Uh, and I mean, I think that, that, that summary shame of fullness is this idea that we're trying to control our sexuality through shame. Uh, shamelessness is we're trying to control our shame through our sexuality. Mm. Uh, we're not dealing with the underlying shame. We're just living out free. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to just go out there and do it. And, and autopilot is kind of this, we may worked with some of our shame, uh, but it still pops up every once in a while. And we're still not really quite sure what we believe, what our values are. So we're not operating out of a place of like health and groundedness. It's just kind of a, oh yeah, I was going to deal with that at some point, but we never actually quite do. Um, yeah. And, and all three of them are coping mechanisms. Um, we move and flow between them. Uh, I, I think in a lot of areas of our lives um, and we, and we need to, and there's another way <laughs> to, to, to do this um, sure. that, that actually gives us kind of a, a place to, to move from uh, and, and move into to more healthy ways of, of, of being. Yeah. yeah. That I thought those three ways are super helpful. Cause I mean, me personally, uh, my experience, I very much started in the shamefulness kind of coping mechanism. Um, and then like I kind of skipped over the shamelessness. Like I was like, well, I can't do that. That's not, that's not viable. And I just right. kind of jumped into the autopilot. Like, well, I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. like whatever kind of thing. Um, but I know that's definitely not everybody's experience. I mean, I went to a, a, a Christian, like a private Christian college uh, called Messiah college, soon to be Messiah university. Shout out to mm-hmm. Messiah. Um, and there was definitely a ton of people that fell into this first category of shamefulness. But then as a response to that, um, I mean, I noticed even amongst my peers, like my good friends, uh, shamelessness kind of became the direct response to that. Kind of like right, a big right. like middle finger F you kind of response. Yep. Um, and I, I mean, I would have friends come to me and, and ask me my perspective for whatever reason they felt necessary asking my opinion. <laughs> and I found myself always within this realm of this, this autopilot thing. Like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's good, if it's bad. Like, I don't really know what to tell you kind of thing. So that, I don't know. I just, those three ways were, they were super helpful to me because they spoke personally to me. Like I, I recognize these things in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, as coping, mm-hmm. uh, you know, coping mechanisms. Right. And, right. I, and I would say, you know, as far as coping mecha- mechanisms are concerned, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I know where I would have fallen because I definitely, mm. in coming into the church, <clears throat> I don't feel like I had um, necessarily the <clears throat> the purity culture, shamefulness, shamelessness, anything like that. I wasn't necessarily looking to just go wild on anything, mm-hmm. um, but I, I definitely didn't know that I was supposed to be ashamed of that. Uh, but then as, as it was brought up and as it was brought, you know, in these different messages, as I started attending more often and, you know, you start hearing them say like, you shouldn't even, you know, do any of these kinds. I, I remember hearing the term 
and I don't mean I, it's going to it's going to sound like a joke. I don't mean it as a joke, but it always made me laugh whenever they use the term heavy petting. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, I, I don't I don't know why you're using that term. Like, it's such a weird term to no use. No heavy like, petting, Marty. Yeah. <laughs> and like, how does that I just I couldn't figure out at all what, how that term was supposed to not make me laugh. Um, but but then I remember kind of feeling, well, well, maybe that's because, you know, like I'm I'm feeling kind of idea you're talking the shame idea. You know, like you're you're unsure and I think as a as a teen, things that you're unsure of lead to being like people 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 will probably say, Oh well that's probably you're probably laughing because you're ashamed. You know, you're probably laughing because it's making you uncomfortable and you know, it's I think I probably fell into that, but if I'm honest, I might have been I might have been forced into that. Mm, I might have been forced into the camp of shamefulness you yeah. know essentially being told this is where you're supposed to be almost and so it's like you're supposed to be ashamed of this part of you that right. is natural and so because you're ashamed of it like you talked about earlier you need to run from it and distance yourself social distancing right you need to <laughs> social distance yourself well done from... hashtag covid19 <laughs> <laughs> from it from anything to do with sexuality you you should if if you are if you are, you know, on the computer and something pops up on the screen, it should make you feel ashamed. It should make you feel anxious and nervous and not okay with it. And that's a good feeling. It's good that you feel the way. That means that you're gonna, you know, kind of go, you know, exorcist on it and you know, stay away from me. And I don't, I don't, man. If I wish, you know, if not, this is honestly, I'm telling you, this is the first time I've thought about this. If I'm honest, that's kind of like. You know, to to put it to put it mildly, that's a that's a gross disservice that I mm. that I was done. Sure. Um, Very much. By being so. forced into this thought of like you must, it's not, and then the must was never was never used. But you should be ashamed of this part of you. Um, you don't want to go into the shamelessness part because you don't want to be, you know, like I said earlier, like you know, girls gone wild, you know, twenty twenty. <laughs> How do you know what that is, but, Marty? <laughs> uh, well, because when I saw it, I was very ashamed. Josh. Um, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think now that I'm starting to think about that, that was probably something that was, in many ways, almost, you know, impressed upon me. Um, this is where you should fall. This is where you should be. And when you feel ashamed, you will be better off because mm-hmm. you'll run from. It. Right. Um, so yeah. 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 It's a. It's a powerful tool i think and and i mean these coping mechanisms are like it's interesting that you say that because for a lot of people who grew up outside of the church like arguably purity culture and and this and these these kind of u.s ideas of, of what sexuality can and cannot be are embedded into our culture because of the way that the u.s was formed puritanical ideas but a lot of folks who didn't grow up within conservative christian churches have these stories of i didn't really think there was anything wrong with me until i went to church (laughs) (laughs) and then all of a sudden i mean exactly what you're saying all of a sudden i realized like oh my gosh like this core part of myself (laughs) yeah really messed up like and and that is a huge disservice Hmm. uh, to to our very beings i think yeah. Yeah, straight up and I think a lot of a lot of this is kind of brought out of this idea uh, well specifically within I should say within Christianity uh all of this is brought out of this idea of purity culture whatever that um the Bible is extremely clear and explicit 
that you should not have sex until you are in a heterosexual relationship and you are married. That's what the Bible says. That's what I was taught the Bible says. Um, but then, interestingly enough, when I started reading the Bible for myself uh, when I was in high school, uh, looking into this, even like, I mean, almost immediately following the whole silver ring thing that I went to, I started trying to find where in the Bible that did it say, like, don't have sex until you're married. Right. Um, and so I couldn't find it. So maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> but my, my question to you, Matthias, is, is, is the Bible so clear on this? Like, when it comes to sex, is the Bible clear on the, the, the idea, like, this is the sexual ethic to have? Right, right. I mean, spoiler alert, I think the answer is no. <laughs> I, I mean, when, when I started turning to, to scripture too, I mean, the, the way it was taught to me, you would, I would have expected. And I thought like, there's a verse somewhere there are, there are multiple verses somewhere that explicitly lay out, here's God's plan for sexuality. Right. Yeah, like on the sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, here it is. <laughs> right. right. One man, yeah. one woman for life, no sex outside of that. Right. Like you, the way it's talked about, you would, you would think that that was explicitly spelled out in scripture. And, and when I turned to scripture and I started asking my parents about it, I was like, so where does the Bible actually say this? Um, it, it was verses like there should be no sexual immorality or, or fornication being listed in a list of sins. Like, like these words that, that are talking about sexuality, but words that had to be interpreted to me as to what they meant. Like, oh, fornication is a sin. Fornication means sex outside of marriage. So therefore, the Bible says sex outside of marriage is wrong. But when we start looking at, well, what does fornication mean? <laughs> what does sexual immorality mean? The Bible doesn't self-define that, right? Um, we have to start turning towards uh, other sources. And, and it's a pretty convenient way that anyone can start throwing whatever their definition of fornication, whatever their definition of sexual immorality is into the text and say, look, the Bible upholds this reading. It's very clear. It's right here in scripture. Uh, but, and, and that's not that scripture doesn't have things to say. And the, and you know, when we start going back into to the Greek, the word that is most often used uh, for sexual immorality and fornication is this word pornea. Uh, and, and pornea is similar to the word fornication in the effect of when it was used, so many different meanings have been applied to it. <laughs> and, and scholars, I, I make the point in the book, there are scholars on so many different sides as to what this word means. And even within the New Testament, there are at least six different use cases as to what the word means. And, and I kind of boil that down to even within scripture, there's ambiguity about what these words mean. So what there's not ambiguity about is that is that sex needs to be taken seriously, mm -hmm. uh, that there's something that, that is important about sex or something sacred about sex. But as to what sexual immorality, what fornication is, there is a massive amount of disagreement. And that goes all the way back to the choice of words, even written into the biblical text. And, and it's almost as if... I mean, this word porneo was not a common word when, when, when it was being written. It's almost as if an ambiguous word was chosen for a reason. Mm, interesting. <laughs> um, I, mean, I, I, I say that in the book, like, like, for me, it comes back to 
to this question of the nature of truth. Uh, and and in Scripture, we see uh, when when Pilate asks Jesus, "What is truth?" Uh, Jesus remains silent in that moment, right? But in other places, he says, "I came to bear witness to the truth." Uh, and, and there's something about truth, I read in that, there's something about truth that is witnessed, right? Truth bears witness in the world when we, we know that something is true by the way that it plays out through our own experiences. Um, and so when we start talking about sexuality and sex, we can see through our experiences or through the fruits of the Spirit, which are also experiential, we can begin to see what is healthy and what is not. Um, and so when when shame, when suicidality, when depression, when PTSD symptoms are coming into the equation, I think scripture gives us a framework for saying like, something is wrong here. This is not bearing witness to truth in the way that scripture says truth will play out into the world through love, joy, peace, and so on and so on. Um, and, and so I think we have to start taking a second look and I think purity culture is one of the major <laughs> places we need to start asking these questions of, are our experiences saying this is healthy or not? Um, and if they aren't, then what, what is health? So that was kind of all over the place. But, <laughs> but, but the answer for me is no, the Bible is not clear on yeah. this. Well, I think that's super helpful. And I mean, too, I've heard people like, kind of tongue-in-cheek offhandedly make the comment before when someone asked them like oh what's the sexual ethic of the ba- the bible and they'd be like oh well which sexual ethic of the bible are you talking about <laughs> right i mean if if somebody wanted to you could argue a case uh, for polygamy using scripture so like mm-hmm. what do we do with that so i think um your point is well taken the bible is not as clear on this as we were led um, to believe. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't think seriously about sex. That, Like you were saying, sex is a very sacred thing. It's a special thing. We should take it very seriously. Um, but when it comes to the Bible and Scripture, it's not necessarily as clear as uh, we were led to believe or maybe as many of us would have liked it. You know, like, here's a list of what you can and can't do, which is literally what my students ask me all the time. So, Josh, um, when it comes to sex... Uh, do X, Y, and Z count, or is intercourse the only thing that counts? Like, that's what people want, and we don't find that in Scripture, unfortunately. Right, right, right. Yep, which is one of the many frustrating things about Scripture. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It makes us actually have to start thinking about things. (laughs) Man, now, there's an idea. Perhaps Scripture is is trying to draw, point us to wisdom, rather than Uh giving us all the answers all the time. That's an idea, and perhaps someone like Pete Enns wrote a book about that, in case anybody was wondering. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted wanted to ask, because kind of along the same topic, so Josh can relate. Um, It it may not have been clear, but Josh and I worked um, in the same church together for uh, about just about a year. And um, in the place that we were working, um, it was kind of the, like, it was that classic conservative, you know, you... um, you are the person. If you're, you're, are you within a healthy heterosexual relationship? Right. You know that kind of thing. So uh, there was there was many times like you know if somebody wanted to get involved in a team, uh, but they and they were maybe even going to be a leader of some type, 
um, if they were living with their girlfriend, for instance, um, they would be disallowed from serving as a leader or doing something like that. Um, there was even a situation where, obviously, I don't want to use any names, of course, but um, it, it became um, it, be, it, it, it was found out that a couple in our church that um, was believed to have been married and had children actually was was not married. Mm. And they had been living together. Um, and um, the pastor wanted me to have a conversation with the man and say, uh, we aren't going to allow you to serve um, in the capacity that you're currently serving. And if you continue along this stretch, now, if you wow. and your partner get married, then we will allow you to go back to serving the way you were serving before. Um, and uh, it was something that, you know, I had to, you know, as I was kind of talking through it and thinking about it, um, as you can imagine, I was very uncomfortable <laughs> with that sort of yeah. directive that you need you need to go do this kind of a thing. Um, in which finally I, I just I, I, I said, listen, I, I'm not comfortable doing that. I'm not comfortable having that conversation. I'm not going to go and tell this this couple um, that I have a great relationship with and respect very much um, that if they want to continue serving the way they're serving uh, then they're just going to have to get married. Um, right. And uh, I think that like, and Josh, you can probably remember too, um, oftentimes um, that was sort of like the litmus test, uh, yeah, the first litmus up. test for somebody. <laughs> um, however, there was another couple, you know, who, um, you know, they, they were, they were kind of on different terms. They weren't married, but they were living together, but they were serving and they were involved. And, you know, it was sort of a, not necessarily a forbidden, like, well, what about them kind of thing? But, um, it just was sort of, you know, we don't really ask those people to be small group leaders if they are, if they're living outside of wedlock, uh, because it was the, it was the assumption. Oh, well, they're living together. Oh, well, come on, come on, Marty, come on, you know, <laughs> you know, Right. You know what's going on there, right? And right. you know, and uh, there, the, of course, he, the pastor, is suggesting that well, they must be having sex outside of wedlock. Otherwise, why would they be living together? Mm-hmm. You know, they must be doing. And so it was this very. Um, I, I think that was honestly probably my first experience. You know, really kind of saying, okay, I'm pushing back against this idea of purity culture really at all. Um, I didn't. I, I, I never, of course, said. Well, actually, my wife and I, uh, we had sex outside of marriage. You know, I never said that because if I did, I was worried I might get fired because if these people weren't allowed to serve, you know, who, who knows what that would mean for me. Um, and so I think even within ministry, I think it becomes this weird, dangerous sort of like, you know, if we're going to uphold these rules kind of thing, you know, because it was always the question, a, an engaged couple would be not would be living together not allowed to serve because they were sinning against God's way. But then they get married, like they're getting married, they're working towards marriage, they're engaged, they get married, but now all of a sudden they can do all of the things that they they weren't allowed <laughs> to do before. But have they repented of the sin that they were living in before? Of course not. The only thing that's changed is a piece of paper that the state has given them that they've been. So it was always this ridiculous thing of like, you know, What's the what's the gray area here, and why is it that we're just making these hard lines? I think that was my first experience, kind of pushing back against that, um, you know. And I don't I don't know how that all comes together, but I guess I guess with that huge long soliloquy, my my actual question is um, not even to summarize, but like like what's the answer 
I mean, like, what what would you? <laughs> like, Dang it, like, Marty! <laughs> like, like you know, like what is what's the answer in your eyes? Like, you know, how does the church, you know, teach you know children? You know, so I'm thinking about my kids. I have eight kids that are nine, eight, seven, and five. I certainly don't want them, you know, the very first chance they get running out and doing whatever. So how do you teach them sort of this balance of sort of understanding who they are and who, you know, minding who they are saying like, this is important. My sexuality is important. Um, you know, this, this, who I am as a human being and what how God has created me is important, but I want to protect that. Like, how do you, how do you teach that? How do you, how do you bring that to you to a healthy place? How would you say? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a big question, right? Straight and, up. <laughs> and I mean, I, 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 I even wonder if, if some of what you're, what you just said, um, how do we help our kids learn to value themselves without yeah. shaming them for our sexuality? And, 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 um, so, so the person who wrote the foreword to my book, uh, her name is Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers. Uh, she's a sex therapist here in Seattle, uh, and was one of the original was on the original team who who came up with the clinical definition of what sexual shame is, um, which there was no clinical definition of sexual shame until just a couple of years ago, which is mind blowing to me. <laughs> that is just. A, a recent definition, but but Dr. Tina has spent her entire career working at at these intersections of faith and sexuality and, and purity culture. Um, she has a concept that she, that she talks about, and I think she's working on a book about um, of like ten thousand tiny conversations. Uh, how do we have with our kids one minute conversations? <laughs> about just normalizing sexuality, normalizing sexual attraction, uh, answering questions in ways where we don't get uncomfortable. Um, or if we do get uncomfortable, we can name that to our kids and say, you know what, like that question makes me uncomfortable and I'm willing to talk about it with you um, because sex shouldn't be something that makes us uncomfortable. Uh, and, and and just learning how to have those conversations in a way where it's not that big of a deal where we're not sitting down and, and having the talk once <laughs> where it's like this big production and everyone's on edge and it's just weird and awkward and we've never talked about this before and we're never going to talk about this again and <laughs> like yeah. as we begin to model that for our kids and as we can have those just like 30 second conversations those one minute long conversations um, that begin to normalize these things that's a start right um, yeah. it's easier said than done because it means we have to work with our own shame. Uh, it means that, that, that when we feel uncomfortable or when we notice our own anxiety coming up, um, we have to do our own work at the same time that we're trying to help our kids do something else, <laughs> which hmm. is not an easy thing to, to, to navigate. Um, yeah. but, but I think this work we, we can do, um, and, and, um, and I, I just understanding developmentally, uh, you know, kids can't hold the level the level of nuance um, that our sure. fully formed brains can, right? So, so the questions of where is the line? What is black? The black and white desire? I mean, that you're you're talking about, Josh, with with your high school students, like mm -hmm. developmentally, that's where they're at. Um, their their brains literally cannot hold the the nuanced thinking to be able to hold spectrums right 
<laughs> so how do we even work with that uh, and give answers that invite thought, that model this idea of what do you think? Um, w- w- I mean, what does what does this mean for you? What are your values in this? What do you think is important when it comes into these relationships? Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like a rambly answer, but... Um, those are some starting points, I think. Yeah, yeah I think that's super helpful. Uh, super helpful, and I um, we might come back come back to that um, in a few minutes. Just as uh, I wanted to ponder with you as like as a, I guess you call me a youth pastor, um, mm-hmm. a high school pastor. Like, what do I? How do I talk to my students about this in a way that doesn't get me fired, but also doesn't. Um, right. make them feel like shit about themselves at the same time, you know? Yeah. Um, but something too, that I, I think is super interesting and it, it has to factor into this conversation, especially the more I study about it, listen to podcasts about it, read about it. Um, but there is, I guess in my opinion, but I think it's also pretty factual, a pretty heavy underlying theme, current understanding of patriarchy within scripture. Like, very much so. I think that's not a shot at the Bible as in, like, well, since the Bible's patriarchal, forget about it. But it's just, like, an acknowledgement of this is the culture. Um, and part of that is, like, hey, if you have sex with somebody's daughter, like, she is now damaged goods, and you wronged the father of that, that girl. It's not It's not the same way we think about it today. So I think patriarchy has to factor into this conversation, and I know... You talk about that some in the book as well. So what what are your your thoughts around that idea? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think patriarchy is one of the biggest lies that we've that our culture has accepted as truth and, mm-hmm. and have for you know centuries. Um, and uh, this idea that God invented or God wills patriarchy. Uh, and and the way I talk about it in the book is is um, I, I sat down with a bunch of different women and basically just share what they told me just kind of wrote out our conversations in, in that chapter uh and and the brunt of it was this idea that that uh women have been taught or my understanding is women has been, have been taught that they bear the weight and the responsibility of men's sexuality mm. so they're the ones who's, who are responsible uh so where i was being taught in my family growing up, I was being taught, don't look, look away, hide your eyes, don't look at that. <laughs> sure. My sisters were being taught, you have to cover up. Um, don't make your brother stumble. Uh, the way you dress mm-hmm. has direct bearing on the men around you, and it's your responsibility to make sure that men don't stumble, and if they do, it's your fault, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which is which is rape culture, uh, if up. we bring yeah. it right down to it, right? It's, it's your fault. Man. Uh, and and uh, and that's I mean that's a lie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it both it puts too much responsibility on women in very unhealthy ways, but it also devalues men in the way of saying like men don't have any control over what they do with their bodies or their sexuality. Um, I mean, on one hand, we're t- talking about how we can't control our sexual feelings, but we can control our actions, right? Mm-hmm. We can control what we talk about. We can control what we do. Um, and it's not women's responsibility to 
to do that for us. And, and I think the classic, the, or the prime, not classic, but the prime example is is LGBTQ people, right? Because it, we begin to see that those of us who are gay, who grew up being surrounded by men, um, I'm using my example, who were in locker rooms where men were naked <laughs> in front of me all the time, right? Which would be unheard of in a heterosexual context. Um, yeah. Seeing that men would not be able to control themselves in their situation and realizing like, well, wait a second, we, we can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in fact, like That's it's, it's quite possible and, and not even that hard, actually. <laughs> So when, when it's one of the things that I think queerness can begin to teach, uh, especially within Christian culture, queerness can start bringing in a level of, of truth and, and, and health uh, back into that, into that world that has been uh, deeply messed up by, by these idea of uh, patriarchy and, and very rigid gender roles. Um, yeah, so uh, let's go ahead and, and jump to that that idea then and i guess i mean that's a more personal question to ask so i can share a few personal things with you uh really quickly uh since we haven't met before and you probably don't know this about me but one thing i mentioned earlier is uh my brother uh my middle brother jordan is gay uh he came out to my family when he was in seventh grade uh the church that we were at uh quite literally said you guys are no longer welcome here and kicked us out um Mm -hmm. And my parents struggled for a very long time to find a church where they were they could go, um, and they ended up landing in a church that wasn't necessarily affirming, but was also like we don't care. Like, why would we mm-hmm. kick somebody out? Um, mm-hmm. And so I have I have that going for me. And then uh, I have a good friend of mine um, who who I mentioned who I worked with um, named Chad. He's done an episode with us before where he shared his story, um, and he grew up uh, fully suppressing. Um, his sexuality. He grew up um, believing that he was wrong, that he was sinful, that that he should be shamed of who he was. Um, he knew he was different. Uh, he tried multiple things. He proposed to a girl, and she said no <laughs> because she knew. <laughs> um, he, Good for her. <laughs> yeah, he he went to um, gay conversion therapy camp. Um, and there, it was there where he realized, like, I mean, this is who I am. Like, I can't escape this. And so without, I don't, I'm not trying to say this in, like, a condescending way, but it seems almost as if people like yourself within the LGBTQ uh, plus community uh, almost have this, like, times two or, or mm-hmm. way, way more multiplied. Because not only are you getting the purity culture thing, but then also it's like, you have the whole, like, you're awful because you're gay um, or because you're within the LGBTQ community uh, kind of thing on top of that, um, which, again, not to sound patronizing, but I can't imagine because it's hard enough <laughs> trying yeah. to figure out what it looks like to be a healthy male yeah. who is attracted to, to females and, and live in a way that is, is healthy sexually. Um, so how, like, how has this experience um, how's the experience of the LGBTQ community been affected or, or impacted um, by all of this? Because I can only imagine it's, you know, multiplied times 10 or whatever. <laughs> I mean, I think you're right there. Like, and, and I mean, not to play like Olympics or anything, but, <laughs> but there is a, a sense of, of, of at least, well, I don't even want to say at least, but, but there is a sense of added absolutely added shame. I, I mean, I think I say in the book, like, um, 
as I was starting to begin to awake to my like conscious sexuality in the underwear aisles at Walmart, right? Um, <laughs> I like there were two realizations. One, I realized as I was I was looking at that like pair of boxer briefs, I was like, this is what my mom was wanting me not to look at. Like yeah. these are the feelings <laughs> when she said, don't look at that at the Victoria's Secret ads. Like this is what she's trying to get me to avoid. So first thing, and, and right on the heels of that, I realized, oh, these, this isn't even the right kind of attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not supposed to be feeling this towards men. Uh, so double whammy in, in that sense. Uh, and I just remember like begging with God, just like, please make me normal. I just want to be normal. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, f- I, because of the theology that I was taught and, um, the thought that that was a, a real possibility that, that God could change my sexuality. Uh, and I mean, and there's tons of story there, but, but to, to speak to this sense of, I, I think purity culture, with its emphasis on heterosexual union, um, because I mean we have to we have to think about what purity culture was in response to. It was in response to um, to the seventies and, and this kind of like free sex culture of, of the seventies. Um, but it was also birthed right at the moment of of the AIDS crisis and and AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. So so we have all of that being mm-hmm. mixed together in a response based uh, a, a Christian response to all of that. It is this is how you protect yourself. So we emphasize heterosexuality and we emphasize very rigid boundaries around sex, Um, which on one hand, like the desire for that, how do we be healthy? Like, I think that's the question people were asking. (laughs) It's a it's a very good question. The flip side is everyone who falls outside of that are then like the shame begins being piled up in in a variety of different ways and and queer folks have had to deal with that women have had to deal with that um and then the list can kind of go on and on and on uh because (laughs) purity culture was not the solution (laughs) (laughs) right yeah 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 well and i think there's so much to that you know it's i just think of um, that my first ministry job, I was a youth pastor, and I was invited to um, sort of like the, the 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 Bible study that like the senior citizen men did every Tuesday morning. It's sort was of it like called a, like Iron Sharpens Iron or something like that? No, it was called yeah. Men Men Finishing Strong. Oh, is what it was called. Is that a sexual? Okay. All right, we'll move. I on. was Never mind. like, <laughs> no, that's where my mind went to, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, I mean, and granted, so all these, all these guys they were great guys. Uh, they were, you know, they were sort of like, you know, I remember somebody saying once, you know, even though I didn't agree with this person on a lot of things, you know, sometimes it's amazing to sit down with these older gentlemen and women of the faith and just hear the stories that they have. And like, you know, just listen to, sometimes it's great to, you know, I, I just, so it was really an interesting time. And, um, but there was inevitably a, um, the question of homosexuality, and so this was a this was a reformed community, um, which you know, truth be told, uh, me being young and dumb and out of out of seminary, um, if I would have really understood reformed theology, I probably wouldn't have taken the job because <laughs> uh, it, it's not it's not where I land, uh, and it, it would it, the, theologically it wasn't the perfect fit. For many other reasons, it was a fantastic fit. I'm grateful for the experience, but uh, the 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 gentleman asked a question 
what if as a youth pastor you are um you you raise up some students and a few years later two of them come to you they're both male and um, they would like you to marry them uh, what would your answer be and i remember my i looked him right in the eye and i said the church has done a at engageable and he said well what would your answer be and i said uh, um <laughs> uh, i said if i was living if i was working within a specific denomination and there were rules around that i would have to may probably defer to those rules as far as like denominationally is concerned but the church has done a really bad job at loving gay people and he just and i looked at these other men around the room who loved that answer, but he hated that answer. I mean, that <laughs> answer for him was like vitriol in his veins. I mean, he hated every word of that answer because to him, he wanted me to say that I would come down on them and I would tell them that they were wrong and that they needed to go find wives and that if, if they did <laughs> that, I would be happy to marry them. Um, or he was maybe trying to insinuate that as a youth pastor, if I hadn't convinced them out of their homosexuality by the time they graduated, that I've done a bad job or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But there, there, there tends to be this, you know, this overall communicate. And, and I think like you're saying, I, I think there's so much of that that leads to shamefulness within the church and sexuality, because I can't imagine. So I had, I heard those conversations in youth group about purity culture and about dating and all those things with which Matthias, I'm sure you had those exact same conversations and I'm sure 150% those conversations were like, uh, wait a minute. I have an exception to the rule here, except <laughs> raising right. your hand and saying, I'm the exception to the rule is totally outside the bounds because it brings up a whole other can of worms. Um, so, you know, I guess, you know, I, every time that I meet somebody that is within the LGBTQ community um, and is, and is a believer, I always want to say, like, I always feel this like deep burning, like desire to say, I'm sorry for the, like what the church has done because I, I don't, I think there's so much misunderstanding of the topic um, not, not even sexuality, but I think they're all, they, they've all become part of the same vein. And I think that, you know, you would be willing to tell a heterosexual male to wait until marriage to have sex. You would probably tell that as a youth leader to a group of 10, 15, 20 males sitting in the room for a small group of time. But if half of those males were gay, you would you would be telling them the same thing except only until recently would they even have been able to get married so like right, you know right. they're kind of thinking they're like how am i supposed to manage this and so there's so much about it but so you know it's to me there's just so much that the church has just missed in this and i think loving people and finding joy and love and humanity and in what makes people good um i think that is sort of you know i guess in many ways the broad brush the broad stroke that I think can help bring people together for these types of conversations, mm -hmm. you know, finding the joy in what makes people who they are, you know, and like sort of like we talked about a few weeks ago with Greg Boyd, we just released an episode um, where, you know, if God can use imperfect people to um, bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, then he can use an imperfect Bible to teach people about who he is. Like, I don't think, the level of imperfection in our sexuality is a is a hindrance to what God wants to do. 
um, totally. in teaching people about who he is. And I think that the more that the more people we can get on board with that, I think the better off the church is going to be. We are actually going to be able to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven because more people will be inspired and excited about being a part of the church because it's not going to be the condemning church that their parents were a part of. You know, it's not going to be the don't talk about it church like their parents were a part of. It's not going to be the purity culture church like we, the three of us, were a part of. I mean, Josh is in his 20s. I'm in my 30s. So we all experienced it. And so I'm, I'm sure that eventually there has to be something different that we come up with. And it hasn't worked. What we've been doing for the last 100 years in the church around sexuality, it hasn't worked. And so what can we do? I mean, I think that I think the church needs to figure out what that next thing is. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's exactly Amen. what Matthias is pointing <laughs> out in his book. <laughs> I think that's the point. The church has to figure out what the heck is that other thing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm not trying to give away your book. I want, we want people to go you're, buy your book and not. read your book. That's... Yeah, the good, the good thing is, is, is we have not yet. Um, which is actually kind of like a cruel ploy that we wanted to implement anyway. Like, cause we've talked about, I mean, I guess technically we've talked about a lot of like the first half, um, of your book and a lot of the, the complaints or, or the, the issues that have been seen and you offer, uh, four, I guess, technically five different, um, paradoxes or, or ways forward, um, yeah. that were, I personally found extremely helpful, um, mm. And that I know others will uh, as well. And so um, we want people to go <laughs> read your book and find those, yes. find those paradoxes. Um, and also just, you know, for, for sake of, uh, of time. But um, I guess what I did want to ask you, though, is and this is something that Marty kind of started at with um, a question about his children. Uh, like I've said, I am a high school pastor that is a part of my job i'm a college pastor that is a part of my job how can i speak with my high school students and college students in a way that psychologically um is helpful and not harmful uh that makes sense of their bio their biology um their biological makeup or whatever um but also doesn't get me fired <laughs> <laughs> because I think what people want to hear, like, so one thing I, I remember, um, I was about to teach a, a series on sex, um, at this church that I used to work at. I was a Methodist church and, uh, this, this older woman, um, wanted to speak with me before I gave the series. And I was like, Oh great. I know exactly what she's going to say. Right. Purity culture. And what she said caught me completely off guard and I'm sure I stared at her for at least 30 seconds with a blank look on my face and my mouth hanging open. But she was like, now, Josh, you better teach those kids that masturbation is good and that they should all be doing it. Or I'm going to have some words for you. <laughs> I mean, this lady was like in her 70s. <laughs> so like That's that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So that happened. And I was like. Oh, that's not a, at all what I expected you to say. <laughs> yeah, but so like I, I can't obviously – and I mean anyone who reads your book uh, and actually understands what you're saying would not take away from your book, okay, let me go and, and just have all the sex I want all the time. That's great. It's wonderful. It doesn't right. matter who they are. False. Right, right, right. Like they right. completely – they don't understand. They're lost. 
Um, and, and you really hit on these ideas of, of building values and understanding what your values are and then using those values to help you build a sexual ethic. Um, but as a, a, a youth pastor working with students who, I, I mean, most of the time the answer that people are expecting is for me to tell those kids like, hey, abstinence, um, how can I talk to them in a way that's, that's helpful? Right. Yeah. So, I, I mean, first, like, like, I, I think my kind of biggest question is, is how do we open a conversation? Right. So instead of closing one off. So if we give an answer that's like, here's a black and white answer, or abstinence is, is the only way that closes conversation, right? It's a, it's a stopping point. It ends the conversation. Here's the hard and fast rule. And if you give that, they're not going to talk to you anymore, right? Yeah. They're going to go find someone else to talk to. Mm-hmm. So I, I always think about like, how do we open, open a conversation up here? Um, the, the second thing, I mean, I, uh, for me, I mean, this is me being a therapist. <laughs> yeah, how no. do we trust? How do we trust the people that we're in relationship with to make their own choices and decisions? And how do we guide them, or or even create space for them to figure out what those decisions are? So, I mean, I, I think about with teens who are trying to figure out like, where's the line? I, I think I said this earlier. Like, we can start working with well what do you think what are your values what have mm, you heard about mm. sex and sexuality what do you think sex is what do you think is going to happen um i think if we can start demystifying some of this idea of like sex is this powerful thing which in some ways it is but in other ways mm-hmm. like i i think a lot of times people have sex for the first time and realize like wait a second, what was the big deal? <laughs> like, <laughs> or in fact, like, wait, that wasn't fun at all. <laughs> like, what's what's going on here? Uh, if we can start kind of demystifying or taking away some of this, this omnipotent power that we give sex, mm. then we can start having conversation of what's actually going on in our bodies. Um, wh- why sh- should we be having sex? Like, what does sex do? Uh, this isn't answering the question, of how do I not get fired, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I mean, that's that's a whole nother conversation based on <laughs> parents and pastors <laughs> and, and communities, sure, and sure. and and no one's ever going to be happy. I, I you can't make everyone happy, but um, I think when we have conversations with our teens, though, uh, we can bring that in. What do your parents believe about this? What have mm. your parents told you? Uh, do you agree with that? If you don't agree with that, like, how do you still like honor your parents and start thinking about this in different ways? Like, I, w- those of us who are kind of those third spaces—pastors, therapists, whatever—are uh, kind of in unique positions to kind of lend an, a helping hand towards development uh, in areas where um, where other people may just close off a conversation. Uh, does that make sense? No, ab- absolutely. Um, that's super helpful. Um, I mean, genuinely, that that's super helpful because I think, I mean, just the at the rate of like the way that students have access to information nowadays. If I were to tell them, "Hey, the Bible says don't have sex until you're married," they could do a quick Google search and be like, "Well, wait a minute." Like I found this book by uh, this guy named Matthias, and and um, he says it's not so clear. Like, <laughs> like right, students, right. 
they're not stupid. They have access that we didn't necessarily have growing up, and and information is at their fingertips. So I think, I mean, I think you're exactly right. We have to open up a space where people can have genuine conversation around the topic without fear, without shame, without disgust. Um, whether that means they're, you know, if if they're heterosexual, homosexual, whatever, um, I think these conversations have to happen. I think that's that's super important and and really key. So I think, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head personally. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Awesome. Well, uh, Matthias, we've been uh, chatting for for quite some time now. Um, <laughs> so I appreciate your time, and I'm sure. Uh, we could keep going because there's so much more to to add to this conversation, but also we really want people to go out and and pick up your book. So where uh, where can people find uh, your book at? Yeah, I mean it's available wherever you buy books. Uh, of course, easiest way to get it is online. Uh, you can also pick it up at, at your local retailer, or they'll be able to order it uh, easily. Um, yeah, so you know Amazon, Barnes and Noble. IndieBound, any of those places are, are great places to get it. Sweet. Also, in, in, um, in line with that, where can people find you? I know you mentioned yeah. at the beginning of the show you have a podcast called Queerology, uh, but where, where can people find you? Yeah, so I'm across the internet at Matthias Roberts, so Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Matthias Roberts. And then my, my podcast, Queerology, is available wherever you get podcasts, uh, and it's on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod. Sweet. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time today. I know I personally really enjoyed this uh, conversation. I, I love the book. Um, thank you. I would, you know, recommend it to so many people, um, especially, I mean, I've already, I sent a copy <laughs> to my buddy, Chad, uh, the guy yes. that, that I worked with. Um, uh, he's a good friend of mine and he's excited to dive into it. But just, I mean, reading through it, I knew there was so much to, I guess, just, again, not from like a, a condescending or, or patronizing way but i think there's so much that you said too for people um like chad or like my brother um there's so much healing in your book not only mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. everybody but specifically also too i think for people like chad and my brother mm-hmm. um and so i really really appreciated about that about your book so thank you for the vulnerability and the mm-hmm. honesty and the transparency yeah. um i know sure. this work is going to help so so many people uh, like it helped me so thank you for that mm-hmm. Well, yeah. thank you, and, and thanks for having me. This has been so much fun. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. We'll have to, to stay in touch, and maybe we can have you on again sometime. Totally, yeah, I'd love that. Sweet. Yeah. All right, well, for our listeners, uh, as always, this, this is how we sign off, Matthias. This is how, how cool people Sweet. do this. Yes. Uh, go Caps. <laughs> and go go Blackhawks, <laughs> and go the team that, Matthias, that Matthias saw a bunch of years ago. Uh, was it in Oklahoma City, right? Yeah. It was in Tulsa. It was in Tulsa. In Tulsa, in so, Tulsa Oklahoma. So whoever, which, whichever team you were, he saw you and go that team uh, and possibly the Seattle Kraken in the future. Right on. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Peace and love, guys. Be easy. <laughs>